The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, welcome to the Wednesday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across me is the one and the only, the Sasquatch herself that ran away from the Smithsonian, even though she had two, count them, two tranquilizer darts in her rear end. Tammy, the big Sasquatch Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Grr. I oh, see. That, 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 <laughs> then you fuck with me. I decide not to say grr. And what do you do? I, I get fucked with too much. God damn. You know what? Is you announce me like I was entering a wrestling ring. Because you should be. You could be a lucha libre. You want me to jello wrestle somebody? Oh, God, no. Honey wrestle? No. That, that, that's, that's Mud past. wrestle? Let's just do the episode. You just gross me out big time. I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Yeah, we're going to be doing episode three of the Velisca Axe Murder House. And I'm hoping to wrap it all up with this one because we just basically have to go through the suspect list now. Because we know it's unsolved since I'm featuring it on a Wednesday, right? One of them is Tammy. What, one of the suspects? I was yep. not alive in 1912, contrary to what my son says. Okay. All right. Hey, you know what? You That's my you. story, and I'm sticking to it. You tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself just to get by. We all know. That I'm oldest. You know what? You're older than me, so be quiet. You know, the Sasquatches live forever, too, and you probably migrated from fucking Iowa over here. And then like, just gave you a different birthday? Yeah, that's exactly and what my, happened. There is no such thing. As, you never hear of Sasquatch sightings in Iowa. In Iowa. You want to know why? All the goddamn cornfields. Y'all hide in there. You go, is anybody coming? Then you leave. There's no real big forests there. You made it down here, though. I'm telling you. <laughs> I came down up. here when I was three. Out here when I was three. A little tiny Sasquatch. Yeah. I was cute then. A mini Squatch. All right. Okay. Let's, let's wrap up this fucking let's three Let's try to wrap this Christ one up. Ready? Long. This one is long only because there is so much information out there. And a lot of information was about how, you know, because of the t- era when it occurred, and the small town community it occurred in, there was no such thing as police procedure. Well, and that, that, that's true, you know. And actually, in, in most small towns, people don't ever think that something like this can happen, even to this day. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because you know all your neighbors. Yeah. You know you know the dude who's running the small general store. You know the, the, right. the sheriff himself. on a per- You probably had the sheriff over at your house for... For supper, um, after church. There's always something, you know, when you have a small town like that. And now, right. in this small town of Aliska, literally somebody Yeah, broke with a population in. of 1,200. They fucking axe murdered the whole family. And two guests, yes. Yeah, and two guests. Yeah, that's got to be pretty damn traumatic, And then fixed a meal and left a slab of bacon in the bedroom. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I got to admit, even if, even if that happened here in Vancouver... Close to me. And we've got like a population of, I think, a hundred and some odd thousand. Yeah. If that happened here, I would be scared chillless. Yeah. Well, and not just that is, I mean, because um, I lived in Storm Lake, Iowa for my teenage years, which is a town similar in size to perhaps Beaverton, but more spread out. Don't hold that against her. She's only half inbred. Yeah. No, I'm not. Hey, you said that you're your own cousin's grandma. I'm my brother's cousin. I'm, I'm brother's aunt by marriage, but let's not go there again. I'm my own grandpa. <laughs> Anyways, but um, 
even then, when I was in my teenagers in the late 80s, early 90s, they, um, we never locked our door. You know, we never locked our door. I could go to the little tiny grocery store up the road and buy cigarettes for my cousin because as all I needed was a fucking note. You know, that's how small town that feel is still out there. Yeah, exactly, you know. So, I mean, yeah. th- think about something like that happened here in 2022 in Storm Lake, Iowa. Oh, it would terrify the entire community. Yeah, probably for several counties around you. Yeah, for probably Buena Vista and Cherokee County at least, if not others, yeah. And it's really weird because if, ha- if something like that happened in Multnomah County over there in Portland, I'd be like, that's over there. I don't, you know. Well, and you'd think, Portland. yeah, that's keep Portland weird. Yeah, this is fucking, because I. Because there's a fucking shooting in Portland every day. I was telling a friend of mine, you know, the, 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 the bumper stickers that we actually see on cars from Portlanders that say, keep Portland weird. It's not a joke. It's, it's an not. actual fact statement. Yeah, it is an actual declaration. And I'll tell you, man, I once saw a dude wearing a literally a tutu with a rainbow mohawk and nipple tassels riding a unicycle. In Portland. And no, I just, you did not. I didn't. I looked around. Well, f- freaking Portland. Okay. That's now See, if that happened anywhere else, much like if if Floridian things happen here. Maybe if it happened in Jacksonville, we wouldn't be worried about that so much. Even but, in Jacksonville, I would I'd be looking at it going, What the hell? Like you're yeah. not fighting a tree or anything. That's weird for Jacksonville. Now, vice versa. If that was in Jacksonville, like I said, that that'd be weird. But if somebody from uh, Jacksonville was here, somebody took off their shirt and they were like fighting a tree or trying to hump it. I'd be like, hey. Or shitting off the overpass. Yeah, I'd be like, hey, no, that's that's not right. Y'all need Jesus. <laughs> yeah. That's not right. But if I saw that in Florida, in Jacksonville, I'd be like, oh, phew, it's Tuesday. It's, that's say, what yeah. this is. No, that's, I was that's, just going to say, that's just Tuesday. Yeah, that's, that, that's a normal day. Oh, yeah. you got attacked by an iguana that fell out of a tree because they actually have falling iguana warnings during certain uh, storms and stuff. Oh, um, I believe it. Or through, through certain cold snaps when it gets below, I think it's like, I want to say it's below 50 degrees or something like that, which rarely happens. They actually have warnings that, oh, two iguanas hit you in the head and cut your eye. Well, that's not unusual for Florida. But if that happened here, I'd be oh, like, yeah. what the hell is it raining iguanas for? Right. Precisely. Precisely. So, yeah, it's just different things for different things. You know, this yeah. is a small town. Um, somebody that was well-respected and well-placed in the community and the whole family that was well-placed in the community. Very much so. They had a very huge impact in the community because, like I said, through the reports, I was able to trace his family history back to the founder, you know, the founding uh, group of people who originally create, you know, established in Villisca. So, yeah, and he was a predominant member of the community because he was a very successful businessman. So... Almost as soon as this tight-knit community of Villisca heard about the horror that happened to the Morehouse, um, they began speculating on who could have committed the murders. You know how small-town gossip goes. Oh, yes. One name rose to the top of their list, but he wasn't the only suspect that investigators pursued when it came to the Villisca murders. Now, I want to talk about who was on this extensive list. Okay, suspect number one was the influential politician. It was only a matter of minutes after learning about the murders before some Villisca residents began talking about who they thought was responsible. The the first person they pointed a finger at to be as being a major player in it was Frank Fernando Jones. Now, although there were two very convincing arguments that supported the theory that he was responsible for the Villisca murders, there were some that thought he was the least likely of all the suspects. 
Now, Frank Jones, like Josiah Moore, was a successful and prominent businessman in Villisca. Not only that, he, ov- he the overly confident man was a powerful and influential politician in Iowa's government. He was born in New York in 1955, Bath, New York, actually. But That's his, his problem. Yeah. God dang Yankee. You can't, Yankee. Y'all, y'all, you can't trust no Yankee up in any place. Let them stay up north where they belong. That's so funny because my friend down in Jacksonville calls me his Yankee Rose. Damn Yankees. And then he called me a tree hugger one time, and I said, I haven't hugged a tree lately. <laughs> well, he may have been confusing you with the tree humpers that are in that could Jacksonville, have been. Florida. That could have been because he's like one of the very few normal people out there. Like, y'all, if you ever want to read some really, really, really unusual strange news, look up. Anything that happens in Jacksonville, Florida, if I'm lying, I'm dying, you'll read things. That yeah, you can go to floridaman.com. If you and, were to read yeah. that, that some of this stuff happened in Portland or Houston, Texas or Los Angeles or anywhere in Arizona, you'd be like, dude, that's messed up. What's, that's not right. Yeah. And then after you read a few from Jackson, you're oh, that, that's a normal day. That's yeah, what that's, that is. That's just normal. Like the chick that went on a high-speed chase through three counties, and when they finally caught up to her, she had a baby alligator in her pants. I was just going to mention that exact same thing, <laughs> believe it or not. And that's not even unusual. She was topless. She had a freaking alligator in her pants, baby alligator yeah. in her pants, and something like 30 monkeys or turtles or something in her. Turtles in the back seat. In the back seat. Yeah, baby turtles. That is a And then the one day. old lady that got... Injured in an automobile accident because some the turtle f- like flung up and hit her windshield and came in and cut her face. Yeah, that's that, 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 that's yeah. Whole, that's Florida. That's, that's just a Tuesday. That's, that's a normal day. <laughs> so, anyways, um, but his family actually moved to Princeton, Illinois, in 1863 when he was only eight years old. Right after graduating at the age of 18, he became a school teacher. He remained in Illinois for another two years before he packed up and moved further west only to settle in Villisca in, 19, in 1875, excuse me, where he bought a farm. As he worked to establish himself in his new community, he continued to teach school while he still farmed his land for the next seven years. Five years after relocating to Iowa in 1880, he married his wife. Now, I wanted to know the name of his wife, right? Because I thought it might play a part in this. But none of the reports I found pertaining to him or this case mentioned the name of the woman he married. He was embarrassed of her. She's probably well, some ugly say, old lady. But I didn't let that stop me because you know me. I mean, you call me the research ninja for a reason. This is true, man. Yeah. I can put you on the most obscure shit. And you're like, yeah, she can. if she can't find the whole thing, she can at least find enough. Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. So although I'm not 100% certain, I'm about 95% sure her name was Maud. Which, that know, that's a Midwest name. That is such an awesome name. I'm serious. I love that because, seriously, you don't even have to say what year that a story is from. If you say, okay, uh, we have uh, Jedediah and Maud Smith. You're like, oh, that's easy. That's not in the, that's the, maybe the early 1900s. Yeah. But more than likely before that, like 1817. Yeah, even Josiah, you know. Yeah, and Josiah, that's yeah. another one. Well, it's really funny because when um, one of Jeremiah's preschool, my son Jeremiah's preschool teachers um, met him because she was new to the area, she kept wanting to call him Josiah. I go, no, it's Jeremiah. Because he's a bullfrog (laughs) and a good friend of mine. Right. So anyways, in 1882, Frank gave up his teaching career and his farming to work as a bookkeeper at a hardware and farming implement store in town. He remained there for the next eight years. During that time, he not only held the position of bookkeeper, he was one of the company's salesmen. 
he also took that time to learn the ins and outs of the industry. This dedication and powerful work ethic paid off for him because in 1890, he joined a partnership with an unnamed individual and they embarked on a business venture together by opening their own hardware and implement store. This was Frank's first step on the path to having a successful career in retail and beyond. In fact, the quote Jones store, because that's what they called it, um, became one of the largest retail stores in the industry in Southwest Iowa. You know what I'm wondering? What? If anybody in the town sang the song, me and Mrs. Mrs. Jones, because he's working all the time. Gotcha. I was like, are you going to go into Mrs. Robinson? But no. No. Yes. Yeah, so, wrong song, man. Wrong band. I know, right? So anyways, Frank actually maintained ownership of that business until 1838 when he retired at the age of 83. Ooh. And it was a successful business. Kudos to him because it's yeah. a bitch to stay in business. Well, especially during, I mean, after the Great Depression and shit, you know? Yeah, no shit. I mean, we we're, we barely survived the freaking pandemic. Just right? barely. Just barely. I was going to say, yeah. Well, and, you know, your company's still, like, trying to pull itself up from its bootstraps right now. You managed to keep the name. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was about it. Well, it's because I, you know, didn't furlough anybody. And so yeah. it was too late and uh, cost me a lot of money. Well, yeah. So five years after opening Jones Store, Frank established yet another partnership to start another business. This time, him and four other men joined forces to found Farmers Bank in Villisca in 1895. Ten years after that, in 1905, they reorganized the business and renamed it the Villisca National Bank. He was the active manager and cashier for the bank for 12 years until 1917. Now, as a staunch member and pillar of the Methodist Church, and I was actually able to research a little bit further and found out that through the years since they opened Villisca National Bank, even though it transferred, um, it renamed itself to another bank, it is actually the U.S. bank that is still there now. So the establishment is still there. It's just gone through different ownerships. Freaking kudos, man. Yeah. Holy shit, that's impressive. Yeah, so as a staunch member and pillar of the Methodist Church, he held the position of superintendent of the Methodist Episcopal Sunday School in town for approximately 25 years, and he also held the position of state treasurer and was later appointed as chairman of the executive board for the the State Sabbath School Association for the Methodist Church. Sometime in the middle of all that, he also served three terms on the city council of Villisca. Now, in 1903, Frank ran on the Republican ticket for the Iowa State House of Representatives, subsequently winning the election in November, and he remained in the Iowa House of Representatives for eight years until 1912. That year, he ran in and won the election for Iowa State Senator for Montgomery County on the Republican ticket. Now, by 1912, Frank Jones was considered to be Velisca's most influential layman. That begs the question, how could such a good portion of the community suspect the seemingly upstanding citizen of being involved in such a grisly murder. Maybe he was upstanding, but he was kind of a dick. Well, you'll see here, right? Oh, I guess I fucking had a typo because I put notive, not motive. Um, anyways, the answer to that question can be summed up in one word. Motive. Um... When the residents of Villisca first heard about the murders, the question whether the killer's motive was sexual ran through the rumor mill. This seemed to be even more of a plausible explanation when it was revealed that Lena Stillinger was found with her nightdress pulled up above her waist and she didn't have any underwear on. 
But after Dr. Williams reported... The scandal! I know. But after Dr. Williams reported that he didn't find evidence that indicated any of the victims had been sexually assaulted, that took sexual motivation out of the equation. By then, they had already dismissed the theory that the murders were committed by a crazed serial killer. The only explanation for the crime seemed to be conventional motivation. In other words, it must be someone who held a grudge towards the family for some reason. Although it seemed to be an unlikely theory at the time, it quickly became the explanation the community seemed willing to accept. Therefore, Frank was the most likely suspect among the locals, and there were two compelling reasons for their accusations. First and foremost, it's no secret that Frank had amassed more than his fair share of enemies over the years. Everyone knew him to be a self-righteous, arrogant businessman. Today, he'd most likely be referred to as a megalomaniac. He was also known to be very ruthless in all of his business dealings. At the time of the murders, you can stop any Villisca resident on the street and ask them, who is Frank Jones' worst enemy? Chances are they would answer it with Josiah Moore. They both seem to have an extreme and bitter hatred for one another, and everyone in town was aware of it. It was obvious because by 1910, if they were walking down the street towards one another, one would cross to the other side so they didn't have to be face-to-face. Well, that explains why why the chicken crossed the road. Right. Why did the banker cross the road? Oh, no, no. Yeah, why did Frank cross the road? Now, heaven forbid if there was a need for them to speak to each other, but that wasn't always the case. In 1900, Josiah went to work for a hardware store, hardware and farming implement company as a salesman. Then, in 1901, Frank bought into that retailer as a partner, and Josiah stayed with the company, which changed its its name to Jones of Villisca. Over the next seven years, he rose to the top by becoming the establishment's star salesman. By 1907, Josiah had grown weary of his employer's unreasonable expectations. It was no secret that Frank expected all of his employees to work from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., 16 hours a day, Monday through Saturday, six days a week. The only reason why they didn't have to work on Sunday was because it's a small town church. Nothing's wrong with that. Okay, but let me give you another hint here, and I know that you'll have a problem with this. He even frowned upon them taking breaks during the workday and rarely allowed for them to have time off. Yeah, you want to know you get time off and breaks? Law makes me do it. Shut up. You're the one that always tells me, take a little break. Get something to eat. I'm just being a dick. I know. Because I know how you are about your business. I mean, you want your employees to be happy. You don't want to work them to death. You want to know why? Happy employees make me more money. This is true. This is true. So Josiah ended up resigning his position at Jones of Aliska that same year. Rather than going to work for someone else, he rented a storefront a few doors down the street and started his own business. Moore Implement Company quickly became Frank's head-to-head competitor. To add insult to injury, which I'm sure deepened the resentment that fueled the bitterness between the two men, Josiah didn't just resign from the company and start his own retail establishment. He also took a healthy portion of Frank's regular customers and his biggest supply contractor, John Deere Plow Company. (laughs) Right? So, granted, under normal circumstances, a bitter, bitter business rivalry wouldn't add up to motive to commit murder. However, Josiah and Frank also had a wedge of pride, passion, and jealousy that stood between them. There's an old Chinese proverb that goes, okay, I'm going to do the Chinese version in both Mandarin and Cantonese, 
but it's Hufu Wu Kwanzi in Mandarin or Fufu Mu Hianji in Cantonese. It literally translates to a papa tiger does not have a puppy for a son. It basically means a powerful father will not raise a worthless son. If that is true, Frank and his son Albert didn't get the memo. Now, where Frank was considered to be a strong, confident, influential businessman and politician, the opposite was said about Albert. People described him as slow, portly, and ineffectual. He was Frank's only son and heir, so he was actually guaranteed a position at his father's firm. However, he didn't have the same business sense as Frank. Therefore, people thought that his father controlled his life. In February of 1910, Albert married a woman from Hollyville, Iowa, just south of Villisca, named Donna Bentley. She had moved to town four years before that to be a school teacher. She was a high-spirited young lady with a dark beauty, and she was a very beautiful woman. People knew that the only reason why she gave Albert the time of day was because he was the powerful banker's son. However, she didn't let a little thing like marriage turn her into a demure wife that kept silent in the background of her husband. In a span of two and a half years from the day of her wedding to Albert to the day of the Velisca murders, the only thing that kept her from being shunned by the community was her social standing as the banker's son's wife. Thanks to the eavesdropping habits of telephone operators of that era, it was common knowledge that she had numerous indiscretions with other men when Albert wasn't home. From the reports I found, she had anywhere from three to five regular male callers that she had come over when they called her house. Her most frequent visitor was a man named Albert Davies. However, if one were keeping a tally, Josiah Moore ran a close second. In an absolute disregard to the opinion of those around her, Donna and the men she invited over arranged their liaisons over the phone. And everyone knew back then that their phone conversations were far from private since, I mean, this is even before party lines, which weren't private, that each call was placed by a central operator. Therefore, it didn't take long for the rumor mill to blow up with tales of the the town's operators had to tell about the phone calls Donna was having and the appointments she was scheduling. Now, most people would think that since Albert was the one that was being made to look like a fool, he would be the person everyone would suspect was responsible for murder, for the murder of his wife's not-so-secret lover. However, everyone doubted that he was capable of hatching a plan, finding someone to carry it out, while planning the perfect alibi. He wasn't that smart. It was much easier for them to believe that Frank was once again stepping up to help his son out of the hole he had dug for himself. One article I read actually put it like this. Frank had to intervene to pull his son's chestnuts out of the fire. (laughs) Right? Isn't that classic? Love it. So even though the gossip mill was working overtime with the theory that Frank was involved in the murders, there was nothing to corroborate their allegations. There was no acknowledgement from law enforcement officials indicating he was a primary suspect, not to mention the community as a whole was unwilling to point their finger of suspicion towards such a prominent member of the society. At least there's nothing in writing to indicate the allegations were founded. In fact, there's only one public record regarding this whole issue. It was printed in the Velisco Review newspaper in an editorial section that actually chastised Velisca citizens for, quote, spreading ill-founded rumors of irrational accusations that a prominent local citizen might be responsible for the murders. 
Historians believe that these suspicions most likely would not have been made public knowledge. However, several members of Josiah's family, as well as the Stillinger family, pressured the authorities to take action in their efforts to apprehend a suspect. And they, when they were unable to make an arrest, the community's suspicions continued to grow. Now, suspect number two was actually a hired hitman. Now, in April of 1914, a man by the name of James N. Wilkerson came to Villisca under the guise of being a Texas land agent. He said he was there to set up shop. He worked several weeks arranging a train trip to South Texas to do what he said was get the best farmers in the world to come and buy the best land in the world. Then on one night, he knocked on the, on the door of, uh, on the back door of Ross Moore's drugstore. And he said that he was actually an undercover operative from Burns Detective Agency out of Kansas City. He told Ross he was convinced Jones was the money behind the murder. From that point on, accusations against Jones were fluent, I mean, rampant throughout the town, but they weren't public knowledge, which means they weren't like documented anywhere. It was just rumor mill. No formal court proceedings had been held and no newspaper uh, articles were written. There was no interrogation conducted, nor were there any arrests made. But the community teamed with rumors for two years while Wilkerson worked his theory. All of this came to a head during the Republican primary election in June of 1916. The Sunday before that Tuesday election, several Villisca residents received an anonymous flyer in their mailbox. It contained a Leavenworth Penitentiary mugshot of a man by the name of William Mansfield. Now, under that picture, under his picture was a text blurb that said that asked if they wanted for their state senator the man whose money had paid for that man to kill the Moore family. Now, the accusation was finally public. Jones wound up losing his nomination for county attorney to county attorney Ratcliffe, who was actually the one that had to release the bodies. And Velisca wanted to see what I mean, they just basically waited with bated breath to find out what happened next. In July of 1916, Wilkerson arrested, um, <clears throat> excuse me, William Mansfield at the Cochran packing plant in Kansas City, in Kansas, and he interrogated him. Then he extradited him from Kansas to face a Montgomery County grand jury. That jury deliberated for over a week, and the opinion of the townspeople was that Mansfield would be bound over for trial, that they would charge him. However, the jury returned no true bill, and he was released. Velisca was awestruck. They did not know what the fuck happened because Wilkerson was so vocal in his attacks against Jones and Montgomery uh, on Jones and the Montgomery County Justice Department. Although grand jury proceedings are supposed to be secret, he insisted that most of them that were um, deliberating the indictment were planted by Jones to pack the jury. These attacks all came to a head in August when Wilkerson started holding outdoor meetings to rally public opinion against Jones, like staying on the street corner, you know? The first was held in, um, 
in a pasture of this guy by the last name of Fryer south of town. Wilkerson, who was um, a pretty, not prolific speaker, but you know, what, what word am I looking for? I don't know, avid? I guess that'll work. It's not it, but he, he was actually a good public speaker. He stood in an open touring car to, to like get the crowd rallied up. He would pat his breast pocket and boasted that he had the documents to convict Blackie Mansfield of the Moore murders and prove Frank Jones put up the dirty money to pay for it. When he held a second mass meeting in Grant, Iowa, which is just north of Villisca, Frank decided he must act to defend himself. So in September of in September of 1916, Jones sued Wilkerson for slander, asking for $60,000 in damages. That suit was argued in November and December that year, and it was one of the most sensational civil suits in Iowa history. It quickly became a trial of Jones for murder rather than Wilkerson for slander, because Wilkerson admitted saying what he was accused of. He said, yeah, I said it. But he also said that his accusations were true and you can't slander a man with the truth. So the judge's failure to control the huge crowd that filled his courtroom um, to standing room only, only added to the atmosphere that was building in in that small community. Wilkerson's case involved around... It revolved around a group of eye, quote, eyewitnesses, most of whom had not come forward until that moment. And first was a woman by the name of Vina Tompkins, who in 1916 was actually living in Marshalltown. But in 1911, she had been camping outside of Villisca with her husband, who, wor- who worked on the brick paving of 3rd Avenue in town. She claimed that at one point she overheard three men talking about money behind the slaughterhouse just southeast of Villisca during the fall of 1911. She thought one of them, quote, resembled Frank Jones, but she couldn't swear 100% that that was true. The next witness was Alice Willard. Now, Alice was divorced and living with her father, Mr. Holland, just a block south of where Josiah Moore's house was. On Saturday morning, June 8th, she saw two strangers walk by the Moore house, then turn south at the corner and come by her house. She said they frightened her, so she looked at them carefully. Later that evening, she claimed she was walking behind the Moore house with a traveling, with a traveling salesman by the name of Ed McCray when she saw three men approaching from the south to hide themselves she and Ed crouched down behind a a bush a thicket as the men got closer she recognized two as a Saturday the stranger she had seen on Saturday morning and they were met by two other men who were coming from the opposite direction and I and um, she I actually identified them positively as Frank Jones and a man by the name of Burt McCall. Now, Alice claimed one of these two. Um, in the beginning, she claimed, sorry, that one of those two men was Albert Jones and Frank. But then later she changed it to it was Frank Jones. So that change led to the conviction of Wilkerson for contempt of court and the trial of Iowa Attorney General Horace Havner for oppressing a witness. But that is another tale that will, de- that you know, 
is part of Iowa folklore, so we're not really going to get into it. But apparently, this five men met right in front of that plum that thicket where her and um, Ed were crouched down behind, and how they didn't get noticed is beyond me. But um, she said she heard the phrase "Get Joe first, and the rest will be easy." Alice claimed Ed McCree was dead by 1916, but authorities failed to locate any record of him, whether he was dead or alive. The next witness was Ann Landers, a, sh- a Shenandoah insurance salesman. Ed and his family were staying with his mother just across the street. Remember we talked about him earlier? He talked for the coroner's jury? Yep. Yeah. So anyways... Even though he had testified at the coroner's inquest that nothing unusual had happened on Sunday night, he now stated that as he and his wife walked past Joe's house at approximately 8.15 that night, on the night of the night, a man just a few steps ahead of them turned and walked right into Joe's house. Ed identified that man as Albert Jones. After hearing several minor witnesses, the jury returned a not guilty verdict and required Jones to pay court costs. In the minds of the majority of those citizens in Montgomery County at the time, this meant that Mansfield was the killer and Jones was the one who hired him. While all this was going on, an ambitious lawyer by the name of Oscar Wenstred of Red Oak, which is the county seat, was running for county attorney on a platform of convening a new grand jury to finally solve the murder case. Oscar was elected and the new grand jury was convened on March of 1917. By now, that case had statewide implications, so the Attorney General Horace Havner of Morengo took charge. He brought in a man by the name of, from, he's a special prosecutor out of my hometown, Storm Lake, named Fred Favel. Now, Wilkerson was also on the team and provided a 150-page document called the Dope Sheet, which identified who should be called as witnesses and summarized what they should say. Right? So it's like, it's totally, totally bogus. Now, in 1917, the grand jury toiled in secret for nearly six weeks while the community waited in anticipation. Then, to everyone's surprise, the jury, once again, failed to indict Mansfield. He was able to conclusively prove that he was working in Illinois when the murder occurred. But the general public never knew that because grand jury deliberations are always confidential. Many, if not most, of the witnesses on the dope sheet failed to testify, as Wilkerson said they would. Dude, that sheet sounds so dope. I know, right? Not so dope after all. So, hold on. Since Mansfield wasn't indicted, the case against Jones was finally over. Unofficially, a large majority of Montgomery County citizens were still convinced of his guilt and that he had used his money and influence to escape justice. To this day, and this is true fact because I visited the house and they talked about it, that many people from Montgomery County still believe that Jones was guilty of hiring a hitman to kill the family. I did it. I was sick and tired of their bullshit. See, the my, farm store. my theory holds true still. It does not. <laughs> so during the Children's Day service, we're going to go on into another, the suspect number three. Now, during the Children's <laughs> Day. Pull that forward. Huh? 
can you not blow that? Oh, I'm sorry. I keep thinking I'm blowing You're it up. Straight out choking me out with your with your My fucking vape. I'm sorry. I keep thinking I'm blowing it up. Freaking dying over here, and I smoke. A damn yeah, fog whatever. bank. I feel like I'm in London. <laughs> so, anyways, this guy was actually a quirky minister, a quirky reverend. Um, during the children's service on Sunday evening, June 9, 1912, a tiny, nervous, bird-like man sat toward the back of the church. Joe Moore sat across the aisle, beaming as his children and said their pieces, and his wife, Sarah, helped direct the show. That strange little man was named Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Get the hell out. No, and Jacqueline, J-A-K-L-I-N. Hey, here's the deal, man. This and guy's his family? wife was like... A, I swear to you, looks like olive oil from Popeye. This guy's family, piss on you. That's too much. There's too many names. Knock the freak off with all those names. Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Freaking idiots. My son has four names. Uh, okay, I reiterate. Knock the fuck off. But they roll off the tongue better. I don't care what you put your tongue on. I don't want to <laughs> hear four names from a person. You have four names. That's different. I use three of them. <laughs> Anyway. And make them strong names. That, that That is a weak name that dude has. Like, I know. Lynn, George, Jacqueline. I mean, he's got three of them are girls' names. Yeah, you know, like my son, he's got strong names. Jacob, Matthew, Alexander. That's tough names. Yeah, my son's name is Jeremiah Jordan Michael Bay, and he's not named after Michael Jordan, just so everybody knows. And my name is James Scott Alexander. Powerful names. You know what's not in there? Some little freaking fruity name like Jacqueline. <laughs> I'll bet you that, I have a country hick name. I bet you that he was before his time, and he liked his olive oil-looking wife to peg him. <laughs> Probably. So, anyways, Kelly was actually born in England. He and his wife, Laura, arrived in New York in 1904, and, Lynn, and his father and grandfather had been congressional ministers, and he had been a boyhood evangelist. During his adolescence, he suffered some kind of a mental breakdown, attributed to his mother's excessive study, so he never went to university. He came to America to serve the Methodist Church and traveled all the way to North Dakota for his first parish. Between 1904 and 1912, he served a dozen or more Methodist churches, unable to stay anywhere for long because of poor money management and peculiar ways. Yeah, I bet with a name like Jacqueline. Yeah. He preached in Minnesota, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska. In the spring of 1912, he gave up on Methodists saying, quote, you can starve working for the Methodists and enrolled in the Presbyterian Seminary in Omaha. Scheduled to begin classes in September of 1912, the seminary president arranged for him to service three open churches that summer. Two of these churches were in Arlington and Pilot Grove. They served several rural parishes northwest of Villisca. Consequently, he arrived in Villisca for the first time on the night on the weekend of the murders. He did it. His name's Jacqueline. He did it. He couldn't quite make it to San Francisco. Anyways. So he was all upset. And maybe olive oil there who said, I can't peg you tonight. My hips hurt. I actually found a picture of him and his wife posing with Josiah's brother Ross and Sarah's dad. So, yeah. Nice. Nice. So there you go. So on Monday morning of the 10th, 
Reverend Kelly left town on the number five train that headed out of the station at 5.19 a.m. And three hours, which was three hours before the murder was discovered. During the next week, he became obsessed with the news of the murder. Since he was in Vallisca on Sunday night, he's, it seemed to bind him to the horror. This obsession resulted in a, a cluster of rambling letters that he wrote to the state and local investigators, as well as private detectives and relatives of the victims. So on his next preaching visit, two weeks later, he actually arranged to stay over on Monday and persuaded Reverend Ewing of the Presbyterian Church to take him in to the murder house. As luck would have it, a group of investigators were going through the house at the same time. Within a month, his letter started to attract an attention among officials who were investigating. Now, Tom O'Leary, who was representing the Hayes Detective Agency, was suspicious of Kelly. He wrote a coy, flattering letter asking Kelly for details about what had happened the Sunday night prior to when he left, the Sunday night of the ninth, right? So Kelly actually wrote to O'Leary and several others providing details that seemed either to be incriminating or just fanciful. Just like fancy talk, you know, the ramblings of a wishful thinker or something. Okay. Yeah. So he claimed to have been out walking when he heard the thud of an axe. He claimed the killer had been disturbed by a couple walking by and had stepped out onto the porch until they had passed. He said Mrs. Moore had reared up in bed before the killer struck. Throughout the summer and fall of 1912, the Attorney General of Iowa quietly investigated Kelly. None of this investigation actually made it to the, you know, was common knowledge to the press, but private conferences were held and reports were filed in which they discussed whether or not there was sufficient evidence to make an arrest of this preacher. No arrests were made at the time, probably because Kelly's positions as a minister made it hard to picture him as a killer. And besides that he was small as fuck also his oblivious his obvious mental illness caused authorities to be uncertain as to what he had experienced and what he had imagined through the readings of the newspaper articles now he dropped out of concern and the omaha seminary because of bad debt until 1914 when he surfaced again in winter south dakota i want to live there And he was also a preacher and a shorthand reporter. Among his talents, he was a typewriter fiend. From winter, he placed an ad for a private secretary in the Omaha World Herald. A woman by the name of Jessamine Hodgson responded and was shocked when Kelly wrote back saying she would do fine, but she must type in the nude. That's how you hire some people, isn't it? Maybe. It depends. Why do you think I don't have a personal secretary anymore? Is that depends on whether they're wearing depends? What? <laughs> oh, if they're an older lady, they automatically get the, the blow job. I mean, the job. You're so stupid. Yeah, I know, but I like the older ladies, man. You keep on. And that's another thing I'm going to complain about is that, like, with me and your mom, you, you, you didn't cock block me, you clam jam me. And that's not right. Yeah, you'll get over it. You gave me a beaver dam. I did. Anyways, so, um,. 
she actually took that letter to her pastor at church who in turn took it who who then took that letter to the police they turned it over to postal authorities who sent kelly a series of dummy letters asking for more details his letters grew progressively more obscene until the authorities were satisfied with their case and arrested him for sending obscene material through the mail which was illegal then kelly was convinced and may have oh he was convicted excuse me in may of 1914 and sentenced to uh excuse me serve time at leavenworth federal penitentiary you know carl pandram's place right right you know, but you know what i'm thinking of right now hmm. he used to be to sex chat with somebody you had to write him a letter and like you know if yeah. it, it could take a week to get there and then i would i would cup your supple breasts and now and when, and when, it's you know, instantaneous. And, well, here's the thing. Like, everybody, they would be, oh, my God, how could you send such a scandalous letter that is not befitting your, 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 your status in the community? We are ashamed of you. And now we're sitting there going, dude, 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 look at my girlfriend sent me. Yeah, right? Titties, dude. Like, totally. It's yeah. Real, no, dude, this is what she want, wants to do to me tonight. Like, yeah. you know, people are like, dude, high five that shit. Like, for real, like well, right here, up top. Well, and what's funny is... um. Actually, it's not really that funny, but back in uh, 2014, right before I had my nervous breakdown, I went through a, a total manic phase because, you know, I'm bipolar. And as part of my mania phase, I experienced an episode of hyposexuality. And I was texting some guy and it, I just randomly met him, right? Barely even knew his name. And next thing I know, he's sending me a series of dick pics. So I, of course, showed them to everybody I knew. <laughs> Here's what you do. I want to give a little FYI to our, li- our female listeners. Girls, 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 gather around, gather around. This guy's going to help you out with dick pic problems, okay? Here's what you do. You keep at least one dick picture on your phone at all times. And when you get one from a random guy, you send, you send it back with, with the picture of that dick pic that you have on your phone. That's nice. It looks almost as good as mine. <laughs> I'm going to have to do that. See? Solving problems. Or, one text message at a time. I've given this one, this advice to some of my friends that, that have gotten random dick pictures. Text back, go, oh my God, it's so cute. It's like a penis, only smaller. <laughs> so anyways, after he was sentenced to serve time in Leavenworth, he was actually transferred to St. Elizabeth Hospital, which is the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C., while he was there, he underwent several months of therapy, in which time he wrote Attorney General Costin expressing fear that he would be arrested for the Velisca murder. Costin wrote back assuring them that he was not a suspect and to concentrate on getting well. During the five years since 1912, authorities continued to speculate on the possibility that he was involved. A grand jury witness failed to cooperate Wilkerson's dope sheet investigators and jury alike decided they should conduct a series a serious inquiry into Kelly's guilt and or innocence as grand jury member Scott Smith said after Wilkerson's case collapsed quote we've got to look at that crazy preacher over in Nebraska now during April of 1917 they constructed an extensive investigation into his possible guilt returning an indictment and issuing a bench warrant for his arrest on April 30th. In an ironic twist, Kelly rode into Red Oak, Iowa on Monday morning, May 14th, which was just two weeks later, on the number five train arriving at 6 p.m. 
This was the same train that he had taken from Villisca on Monday morning after the murders five years before that. He voluntarily presented himself to the Montgomery County Sheriff, Bob Dunn, that afternoon. During the summer, Montgomery County, and to a lesser extent, the rest of southwest Iowa, had been in an agitated state. Wilkerson had formed an organization called the Iowa Private Association or the Montgomery County Protective Association, both names were used, which collected money for Kelly's defense and continued to call Jones, called for Jones's arrest and trial. The Attorney General, Havner, placed a pen writer in the crowd so that verbatim transcripts from several of these meetings are in the state archives to this day in Des Moines. So he had like a, his little plant. Right? Right, right. Because they didn't have audio recorders back then. They had to handwrite shit. So, in general, Wilkerson used these meetings to reiterate his case against Jones because he was not going to let it go. He outlined a government conspiracy that was framing Kelly, and he collected money. The money he collected was to hire a defense team for Kelly and fund a continuous investigation against Jones and William Mansfield. The defense team was headed by Wilkerson's lawyer in the slander suit, Ed Mitchell, from Council Bluffs. While these torchlight meetings, that's what they actually called them, were going on throughout the summer, the state plotted on its construction of a case against Kelly. By September, when he was brought to trial, that case had four essential elements. One, earth, wind, fire, water. You're so stupid. I didn't say... You said four and essential elements. I did say essential. You're right. I apologize. I meant essential to the case, not to the environment. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Oh, my goodness. That's right. So, little James Taylor moment. You did. So, anyways, the first element was Kelly's disturbed mental state, including his sexual, his obsession with sex. Number two was a bloody shirt he sent to be laundered the week after the murders occurred. Number three was his knowledge about and his talking about the murder before it was even discovered. And number three, I mean, number four was his confession. He was specifically charged with the death of Lena Stillinger. She had been found with her underwear removed and thrown under the bed and her nightshirt bunched up over her hips. She had been pulled down in the bed with her hips slightly off the mattress and a lamp was at the foot of the bed and the state contended that the killer, namely Kelly, had displayed her for visual sexual gratification. Now, they also pointed out that Kelly had been peeking in Billy Miller's wife's bedroom just days before the murder and had been observed in several towns prowling the streets late at night. He had also made specific requests that young women pose nude for him on at least three separate occasions. Finally, while he was in Carroll, Iowa, preaching, which is close to my hometown, yes, in a, less than a year after the murder, he cajoled and pled with two 13-year-old girls in his parish to pose nude for him. All these actions were offered by the state as evidence that he entered the house, killed his occupants, pulled down shades and covered the glass in the front door so that he could look at a semi-nude Lena Stillinger to his heart's content. God the, damn. Yeah. So the final aspect of the case, the state's case against him was his confession. He had been interrogated repeatedly 
repeatedly throughout the summer. But as the trial drew closer, the state officials decided on one final all-out effort to get him to confess. Later in the afternoon of August 30th, he was brought into an interrogation room in the Logan Jail and confronted by Attorney General Havner himself, as well as state agents O.O. Rock, that's a nice name, and James Risden, and the Harrison County Sheriff, M.D. Myers. Thus began a grilling that that lasted throughout the night. All of these big men played the bad cop role with the demure, the like the small stature, really like timid Kelly. But you should have made a good pun out of that. The grilling continued all night because so much was a steak. Nothing? I am not. Nothing? I am not a Fine. dad. They needed, they needed some evidence that would really stick to your ribs. Stick to their ribs. So anyways, they would break occasionally to let him return to his cell. In his cell... Once he was in his cell, he found two, quote, thieves who assured him from their long criminal experiences it would go easier if he just confessed. One of these, quote, criminals was actually a deputy sheriff from Pottawatomie County named G.W. Atkins, and the other was a newspaper editor from Missouri Valley. By 7 a.m. the next morning, he broke and dictated a confession. Frame, frame, frame. That was framed. In his confession, he claimed he had difficulty sleeping on the night of the murder, so he went for a walk. He said while he was walking down the middle of the street, he saw a light on in a house and two children getting ready for bed in the downstairs window, which would have been the Stillinger girls. He said at that point, he heard the Lord's voice commanding him to, quote, suffer the children to come unto me. So in a trance-like state, he said that he walked to the back of the house, grabbed the axe, went in the kitchen door, and proceeded to kill everyone. He said he stayed in the house until it got light, then he let himself out and left town. Armed with that confession against him, they brought him to trial on September 4th. The trial lasted until Wednesday. One, oh, no, until Wednesday, September 26th, so 22 days, when Judge Boyce turned the proceedings over to the jury. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal and was dismissed Friday, the 28th. A second trial was held in November, with Kelly being acquitted of all charges. By the time the trial began in September, a majority of the residents in Montgomery County were convinced that he was being framed as part of a conspiracy headed up by Jones. In their eyes, Jones had used his money and political influence to not only pack the jury in 1916, then called on his crony, which was Attorney General Havner, to mislead the 1917 grand jury. And now they were framing the poor, diminutive, deluded, like mentally handicapped Reverend Kelly. So at the second trial in November, the Velisca Axe murder case was legally at an end. The grand jury would not indict Mansfield, and nor would they indict Jones, and the jury would not convict Lynn Kelly. There were no other suspects, although many other murders occurred during the years between 1912 and 1917. The serial killer had not struck again, so that avenue was also closed. Consequently, while the case remained open, it was essentially over, leaving immense frustration on everybody's part. Family and friends of the victims were like 
they hit brick walls when it came to their search for justice. Havner and most other po- police officials were convinced that Wilkerson had so poisoned the minds of Montgomery County citizens that they had let the real killer go free. Nothing was resolved as both sides glared at each other in in fury. Like those who supported Jones glared at those who, you know, who supported Wilkerson. It is not to say that there weren't several minor aftershocks. Between the two trials, John Warren Knoll, a Velisca photographer and staunch Wilkerson supporter, uh, what an, also an important witness in the slander suit, was found shot die, and dying on the railroad platform in Albia. The Wilkerson crowd tried to suggest murder to shut him up, but an Albia coroner's inquest found it to be suicide. Railroad detectives were hot on his trail for an attempt to collect money from the queue per, for preventing an accident they believed he staged. Now, in June of 1918, Wilkerson and May who was John Knoll's wife, were arrested in a Tumwa, Iowa hotel on the charge of conspiracy to commit adultery. Because, you know, adultery was illegal back then, too. That's messed up, man. Right? You would have been in jail a lot. I would have been a permanent resident. (laughs) Now, um, hang on. How much more of this episode we got? Like a page and a half, two pages. Thank God. Give me a minute. I'm almost done. Dying over here. No, you're not. Shut up. Dying. <sighs> Fuck. You made me lose my place. <laughs> okay. So six months after that, their trial jury hung over the question of whether they could convict Jim and not May. The judge ruled that he didn't see how they could convict one without the other. So during the summer of 1918, Wilkerson was busy running for Montgomery County attorney. He easily won the Republican nomination and would have certainly won the general election in November. But to get on the ballot in the first place, he had to admit he had to be admitted to the Iowa bar in his application to the Iowa Supreme Court provoked a dramatic response from Attorney General Havner. And he collected a Havner collected a dossier in opposition that thwarted his uh, running for um, thing. And that entire dossier is on record at the Iowa State Archives as well. So um, hang on. Now, basically, um, there was, uh, where was it? Hang on. Okay, so the Moore House has has been purchased and it's been renovated, and it's now a um, it's actually a popular tourist destination, right? So the Velisca Axe murder is the only Iowa crime that has potential historic literary legs, so to speak. In this sense, it was like the two great murder epics, Jack the Ripper and Lizzie Borden. Jack the Ripper, well into his second century, continues to provoke controversy while novels, plays, motion pictures, and even musicals are based on his crimes. Historical studies of this serial killer ranging from serious to fanciful also seem to spring up like mushrooms almost yearly. Then, America's equivalent to Saucy Jack was Lizzie Borden. There's a veritable cottage industry producing books and television documentaries speculating about her guilt or innocence. There's even a quarterly journal devoted entirely to the Borden murders, and the city of Fall River is currently embroiled in a controversy about converting the murder house into a bed and breakfast, which they have since done. Um, let's see here. But went on to... Okay. Now, the question 
and I didn't get into this in this one, but there was also another person that was never an official suspect, but he was convicted of murdering a family almost in the exact same way as the Velisca murders were conducted, whereas each person was murdered with a blunt end of an axe. They had, then the killer went through, covered their faces, and every reflective surface in the house. He was a vampire. Okay. So that begs the question that has never been really investigated or addressed because of the controversy behind whether Kelly was guilty or Jones was guilty of whether a serial killer truly did commit the crime. Okay. So I'm ending this episode here, but stay tuned for our next Wednesday episode where I will get into that serial killer theory with another case that might be linked to this one. I think crisis one's over. Shut up. It wasn't that long. I aged 40 years. Wasn't that long, ass. When, when we started this, when we started this. You were only 48? I was nine years old. <laughs> Are you 49 now? Yeah, I'm 49. Holy fuck tons, Batman. And look fabulous. Oh, that's I'll be 48 in January, so that tracks. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Check out the website, too, at www.twistedbluellc.com. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved, and no Sasquatches were harmed in the making of this episode. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.